0: Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a principal and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency obsessed with meaningful impact in Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with Jonathan Hess, principal and president of Browning Day mullins dierdorf Architects in Indianapolis. Jonathan and I catch up about his experience becoming a professional architect and principal, and his work on an amazing orangutan exhibit that's here at the Indianapolis Zoo. If you ever have reason to be in Indianapolis, the zoo and especially the orangutan experience is worth checking out. So without further ado about monkeys and apes and whatnot, please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Hess. All right, guys, I am very excited today to welcome Jonathan Hess, who is principal and president of Browning Day, which is an architecture firm that's here in Indianapolis. Jonathan, welcome to Obsessed with Design.
1: Well, thanks, Josh. It's great to be with you today.
0: I guess the full official name is Browning Day mullins Deerdorf, and um, none of those names are Hess. So tell us about uh, <laughs> your yeah. involvement with Browning Day and uh, being a principal and kind of how that came to be.
1: Uh, well, you know, I, I've always enjoyed that my name isn't on the masthead simply because it gives me a degree of anonymity that allows people <laughs> to speak differently about the projects we might be associated with. But, uh, I've been uh, I've been part of the firm since 1984. In fact, I think my anniversary is coming up um, in February. But uh, I joined the firm. Uh, Back then, after i had come to Indianapolis after graduating from the University of Illinois with a a degree, a master's degree in the design option at the School of Architecture over there in Urbana-Champaign. And I came over really to, I worked at James Associates for a little over a year because uh, one of the partners at the firm that I worked my way through graduate school with had come back to Indianapolis And he rang up one day and said, you know, we're hiring folks. And so that's what really sort of got me over to Indianapolis was a desire to continue to work with uh, a mentor and a friend, David Powers, actually, who has his own architectural firm here in town. Great designer, great guy. But I joined James because they also were working on the zoo at that time. And so I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. that's a once in a lifetime opportunity to sort of uh, learn about animals and do exhibit design, habitats and, you know not uh, not be so biased about, you know, homo sapiens. So that was, uh, I had a great time there about a little over a year. Um, but uh, fundamentally, I had some uh, differences of opinions with the uh, leadership in that particular firm. So I called, a, I, I paid a cold call on Browning Day, Mullins and Deerdorf at the time. And there was this uh, exquisitely dressed gentleman when I walked in and it happened to be Jim Browning. I didn't know him from Adam at the time, but I was full of confidence and I had my huge portfolio under my arm and Jim was kind enough to give me a half an hour to look through the work that I'd done mostly in school a little bit while I was at James. And I extended an offer of employment to me right then and there. So it was, you know, kind of coincidental, you know, accidental. Um, No, I've often said no amount of planning probably could have gotten me to where I am today because a lot of it is uh, uh, not necessarily serendipity, but it's certainly uh, being, uh, being flexible and open to opportunity when it presents itself. Anyway, that was 1984. Uh, and Jim uh, you know, sort of took a, took a liking to me, um, helped introduce me to people in the community. And in 1985, I guess, shortly after I'd started there, he introduced me to Harrison Idle George. And uh, we started working together then on the Idle George Museum. And so it was, uh, and that path allowed me a path to becoming a principal in the firm. Uh, Idle George opened in 1989. And so, yeah, that's kind of humbling, right? 25, 26, 27 years ago now. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Um, and so, you know, that, so, so that project was sort of a, a catalyst in my Certainly, my professional career certainly my opportunities within the firm were accelerated because of that, um, because of the faith and confidence, and the fact that we didn't screw up. You know that we delivered something that um, <laughs> bonus. It, yeah, still still seems to be you know working not only for the museum but for the the patrons that supported. So um, through that, I met a lot of people, and, um, and we had the opportunity then to start some work at Butler University, uh, then President uh, Jeffrey Bannister, and we did some work over there. All this time, the firm was certainly doing a variety of other work, sports work and other academic and institutional work, but uh, through a series of projects, then uh, became, let's see, I was a principal, I said, like in 89 or 90, and then became the president, I think maybe five, six years ago, something like that, of the organization. But we run a, an executive uh, sort of uh, leadership group here, an executive committee. And so we all share the burdens of running a creative business. And sometimes, you know, that that business side, what we want to be is a professionally driven business, not a business driven profession. So, you know, we try and share those responsibilities across the board. So, So that in a nutshell, that's the nickel tour of me becoming the president of the firm um we're about we're about 50 people about 10 in landscape about 30 plus in architecture and then the balance in support business development and accounting and things like that so we don't have engineers on staff not that we don't like engineers it's just that we've always been more about design and we then have the flexibility of hiring the engineers that are most appropriate for the particular project that we might be associated with at that point in time.
0: So what was it, you know, we we talk with a lot of our guests about um, what I call their origin story. What was it about the idea of design or or how did your, you find your way into this um, world of architecture?
1: Well, I've often said that, you see, my grandfather on my mom's side was when he came off the farm when he was like 85 or 86, a strapping German of, you know, sort of great, great physique and strength and wisdom. Um, he came off the farm and he uh, wanted something to do. So he became sort of a carpenter. And as I was a youngster, I used to sit out in his wood shop and watch him build things. So I think there's part of that builder um in architecture that comes from that sort of observation or impression the other part was um, certainly my uh, my father helped me understand at an early age that I saw the world differently than most people and he encouraged that uh, through uh, some some ser- well surreptitious manners where he would take me to different places and help me understand that the experience of being in a place wasn't necessarily about a preconceived idea. That by way of saying, early on, he took me down to New Harmony, Indiana, and we went to the roofless church, where, you, of course, you realize you know pretty quickly that, well, church doesn't always have to have a roof, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a minister, so my path to architecture actually came because I wanted to do churches. I've done a couple churches, and I've figured out that I can either do churches or go to church, so I think, you know, i I probably erred on the part of you know, sort of uh, being quietly um, um, non church going, <laughs> <laughs> but having a faith, perhaps, in my profession and my professional abilities. <laughs> so, so there was a, there's a path that's about uh, there's about modeling, you know, through my grandfather, and then there's a path that's about uh, uh, the environment of uh, of nurture, I guess, of nurture, uh, nurturing those ideas about. Making places and spaces, and understanding at an early age that you could uh, that there are different character and qualities of uh, of places, and they call you out differently, and and uh, so that was kind of intriguing to me. And and by the time I was eight, I was prof- you know I was professing I wanted to be an architect. I don't think I fully I know I didn't fully understand how could you at eight but that meant mm-hmm. really to your life, but it was a strong enough you know it was a strong enough. I guess my brain was cauterized with architecture or something like that, where I, you know, I just sort of focused on that um, through high school. Took all the prep courses I needed to, and then I went to the University of Illinois. So it was a calling that became a reality, and I'm lucky every day that I get to do what I love. And I understand that that doesn't happen, yeah, for every day, you know. So I feel really, really lucky that. You know, whatever, whatever it was that, you know, sort of got the chemistry flowing, um, you know, did in fact get, get me uh, to that vocation and avocation that have been blended together in what I do on a daily basis.
0: Well, I think what's really cool is, at least from a lot of the architects that I've met over the years, that there are so many who maybe fall in the category of either, you know, I'm doing fit plans all day. I'm just sort of drawing boxes and, sure. and that's not so much fun or they're kind of at the other far end doing pure administrative work. Um, and it sounds to me like you still have a strong passion for even the things that you do day to day. So I'm kind of curious what, what that is like, what, how do you spend a typical day and how involved are you still in the, in the actual design of a, of creating one of these uh, iconic spaces?
1: Well, I start my morning. Yeah, I start. I start about you know about five a.m. I uh, I do a little bit of physical workout because that helps my my attitude and my brain. It's also a time of day where I find that um, the the um, I'm more likely not to dismiss an idea. But rather to see it as a you know a bit of a kernel of an idea and, and to give it some proper cultivating. But um, I'm in the office usually by six thirty something like that, uh, and I draw every morning for a couple hours until the phone starts ringing or the you know the disruptions of the day happen.
0: Sorry. Well, speaking of disruptions, sorry to to add one here, but um, are are you sort of sketching for fun or is this like client related drawings or tell me more about that.
1: No, that, well, it, it would depend. Um, today, uh, the task at hand was uh, doing an ornamental gate for a client, as well as helping uh, with uh, some reworking of a, of a small residence down in Bloomington, Indiana for a client. So those are small scale things that really, I think, give me great pleasure. At the same time, there's the other scale of the opportunities where we might be working on anything from museum renovation to a strip center to, <laughs> you know, lots of different mm-hmm. things. So, but, but for the most part, yeah, I try and be selfish a few moments early in the day to, to uh, replenish the well. And I think that's pretty important for me just to give myself a little bit of, of the benefit of daydreaming. a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's a great habit. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's nice that I have the luxury of doing that. Maybe I've given myself the luxury of doing that. But there's plenty of time for the other stuff. You know, the emails are endless. You know, the communication and correspondence is never ending. But most of that I try and hold off for, you know, sort of the low power points in the day uh, and uh, into the evening. But then, you know, a day might be uh, there's uh, there are all the different tasks of everything from reviewing spreadsheets to, uh, understanding what our marketing and business development, uh, direction is, uh, updates on projects, the errant phone call from a, a, hopefully a pleased, you know, client, um, friends to keep in touch with. I had just had a great call from a, a former, uh, teammate on a project who's, uh, a brilliant scientist and he's coming forward with uh, new micro turbines that uh, are kind of interesting for you know uh, sustainable approaches to energy and homes and things like that so you know it's 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 varied and uh uh it's uh wonderful and uh, never boring and i'm sure it's like that for you in a day right even though you're doing mundane things or rote things they're not always the same. So I think that's one of the other pleasures of what we do as in the design profession is, you know, it's even if you might be doing blocking plans or budgeting, for the most part it's for a different client at a different place with a different set of parameters, or hopefully it is, or maybe you can make it that way in the back of your brain, you know, so that you stay engaged. I think even when I've been doing this now for, you know, some a while. I think it's, I've been here 30-some years, and, and I think hopefully every day you bring some portion of your best to what people are paying you to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're not, then it's, you know, it's, you, you get suspicious about what you're doing. So, um, and that's all about a head game, really, isn't it, Josh? You know, how you bring yourself yeah, no to work kidding. every day. So, but I, again, I think, you know, I, I get to, you know, I get to draw, I get to color, I get to dream and uh, I get to dream with people that I, uh, that I really uh, grow fond of in my professional relationships. So those are really, uh, those, I, I feel blessed from that standpoint. So, yeah, now you'd have to ask the folks that I work with, whether or not they feel blessed <laughs> working with me. <laughs> I'm not sure it's completely reciprocal, but I think for the most part, you know, if if i'm lucky enough to be you know engaging with someone on the studio floor that i would expect them to be bringing their best to it and making it better for their contribution of an hour or a day or a week or a month or a year and so those things you know being 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 fresh i guess is part of it as well right
0: absolutely you know i i think it's interesting that you mentioned kind of at the top of the interview of um have enjoying a, a degree of anonymity uh you know the thing that i've sort of joked with you guys about in the past is you guys have such amazing work, and you know you almost have to hunt to figure out who who did some who did of those it? projects <laughs> <laughs> so it's
1: uh well i don't know if that's always good josh, but i think <laughs> you know i think you know the fact that our work is really varied and it's not cookie cutter and uh you know it may not, hopefully it's not predictable and yeah that's you know that's i think that's I I take pride in, in in our work from that standpoint that it
0: is. And that's kind of where I was going with it was, you know, you've got a couple of these different, you know, studios that focus on different industries. And so, so how do you guys decide like what the next industry is that you're going to pursue? Or I know you in particular have done a lot of work in the college and university market. So um, in addition to museums and zoos and things like that. So Um, how, how do you, I guess, personally within your studio, how do you determine what a good potential fit is and what, what's going to be a a pursuit that you're interested in and which ones you should walk away from?
1: Well, yeah, that's a good question, Josh. I personally, I, I really like doing a first by that. I mean, I feel most energized when a client comes or we become aware of a project uh, and we perhaps have, you know, uh, an opportunity to be considered or interviewed for it. But when you do a first of anything, you, you're you so enervated by, uh, you know, never having done it. Uh, and so you don't carry any biases with you with respect to that. I think those projects uh, are the ones where personally for me I've grown the most. Because you're completely naked going in, you're completely uninformed, and you get to to do all the research, all the benchmarking. And then you get to ask what if uh, not only of yourself, but of your client uh, with respect to those pursuits. So I think, you know, that, that's a vague answer to your question. What's next in a marketing sense? I, you know, I always, you know, when anybody asks me what my favorite project's been, I always say the next one, because <laughs> it, it, it is truly for me that, that it, it's not that I don't have great memories and fondness for all the work that we've been you know, privileged to do, but you know that's that's in the rear view mirror. And while it's you know it's much appreciated, it's also history. So so what's next? Um, you know, the higher ed work continues for us. The uh, museum work, you know, that we're as we're situated in in Indianapolis, um, the the museum work that we've been privileged to do really is is localized here, it really hasn't exported very well because we're not a a nationally known company. Uh, And I think once you get out of your hometown, you know, it takes an awful lot of uh, status, I would say, Mm -hmm. to garner those, you know, sort of second tier or first tier city museums. So we really haven't, I haven't marketed uh, directly in those areas. Now we're helping out uh, the Richmond Art Museum in Richmond, Indiana right now, which has a great little collection. Um, wonderful collection, actually, as they modernize some of their facilities. And, we're, you know, so we're, we're very comfortable w- with that. We're also helping Indiana University uh, update uh, the I.M.P.A. museum. Uh, we won't be making any physical changes to the outside of the building, but we'll be adjusting with the help of uh, a partner firm, INIAD, out of New York. Uh, the interiors and the allocation of spaces, uh, increasing gallery space, renewing systems, and updating all that sort of lighting, et cetera, et cetera. So that institutional work probably is is at the core for us, or, or for what we do in the studio that I'm directly associated with. It seems to be uh, an ongoing and, and, and offers a great deal of opportunity in the future. We're at Butler University again, and we've been there for 25 years on a variety of projects. So I think uh, those those edu- higher ed higher ed opportunities will hopefully continue um, for us uh, I think you know the uh, I think we do best when we have the opportunity to have a close personal relationship with the people that are leading the particular projects um, those draw, me into the conversation and i appreciate that and that allows me to do i think some of the best work because you have a personal you're personally invested uh, which is more than just a corporate moniker more a a way of approaching it in a in a uh, more business right more business approach so Mm -hmm. again back to professionally based business we we we're organized here around you know sort of we still practice all of the, you know, all the partners here still are active in all of their projects. And I think that's, uh, that's the way we want to do our work. And I think that's, uh, I think our clients understand that they get that kind of direct access to a partner and the, hopefully the good experiences of, uh, history benefit, you know, new clients as well.
0: And I know you mentioned, um, you know, the projects are best when you have that close, you know, more, more intimate working relationship with somebody who's, who's on the client side. Yeah. Where do you feel like those best types of clients come from? And are there any, any red flags that you watch out for sort of at the, at the client level before you would pursue a particular project?
1: Well, Josh, how many times have you been in an interview room and you're interviewing just as strongly across the table? <laughs> yeah. I I think I look. I think we have an innate ability if we want to tune into it to understanding and feeling a room like that, who's going to be a, a a good workable client. I think there's certainly a value overlay that you start to look for. I think there are, there are certainly physical, uh, you know, gestures and clues that, you know, you either resonate with someone or you don't. um, A lot of times I think what we do is it's, it's, Pretty some clients, I think it's very hard for them to discern what architecture is about and how one architect is different than another, uh, and and how do they compare services? And I think ultimately that really boils down to how you how you can how do you effectively communicate your process and your values across the thin air of an interview table, right? And and mm-hmm. how do you How do you help someone understand that while there is going to be a business transaction here, there's also much more involved than that? Because as you well know, the physical manifestation of a company in what they're housed in is just as much a brand as a corporate mark or a a product, right? So I think and I think quite honestly, you know, if, if, a, if, a, if the, per, the person doing the uh, purchasing of that service uh, is, is interested in that journey, I think you know, then, then we stand up well. If they are looking for low dollar, I'm not sure that's necessarily the criteria you want, we'd want to be selected on, although we compete regularly as, as all firms do. Uh, So we have to be in the marketplace with respect to, we have to be competitive, but we also need to be uh, feeling valued for the work that we bring to the table. That's a long answer to your question. Did I get the, did I answer the question? I'm not even sure I did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually. Yeah. I like that. You know something that I was thinking about um, that we talked about a little bit at the top of the show because I was trying to figure out if it was if I was saying it right. But um, <laughs> uh, you guys worked on the International Orangutan Center at the yeah. Indianapolis Zoo, which is um, if you've never seen one of these creatures up close, this is one of the most incredible places to see it because of this space that you guys designed. You can literally be a, a you know a pane of glass away from from one of these animals, and it is really a, it's such a surreal experience um but maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of the vision for that center and and how you guys became involved in that
1: yeah that it's a it's a great project i uh i again we felt really fortunate to be considered to you know and to garner the commission um it started years and years ago actually as we you know uh in a way, for me, also it was reconnecting with the zoo after coming to town originally to you know, sort of work on the master plan and do some of that. so it was it was gratifying to be, you know sort of uh, asked to assist, you know some some well, many years later. but um, after we were hired, you know the, and I think we were hired because the zoo didn't want someone who had done, a great ape facility in the past because in in our benchmarking and prior to being selected, I traveled to, you know, a variety of zoos and went to the best one, I guess, at the time, which was out in Seattle for primates. And I was really struck by the fact that, you know, it was basically monkeys on the lawn, you know, it wasn't really anything, even even if the species wasn't, and orangutans are not, you know, ground dwellers, they're uh, up in the trees all the time. But you know, it, it just seemed like we, the zoos had defaulted into what was the easiest way to present the animal rather than what was the best way for that species to thrive and to be well in both a physical and a mental and a social sense. And so, you know, you start with some of those basic questions and we were blessed along the way. The zoo, uh, I had Ed Sharon, who was actually a TV producer out of New York, and he was on a bit of the steering committee with us, and he helped, you know, sort of shake us out of that sort of uh, traditional sort of mode of um, what zoos were doing with respect to primates. He was uh, a member of the Bronx Zoo, so we headed out there to see their chimp exhibit, which is a really good, very good exhibit, and it puts you... Um, You know, right in some of the environments that the chimps are in. But the other part of that equation was really understanding that orangs are that we share 95 percent of our genetic material with the angs that they're incredibly, uh, smart. They're incredibly strong. And in a zoo environment, they have all the time in the world to figure out how to get out of any enclosure. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're notorious for, you know, for doing that great escape artists, you know, they, they, uh, they just sit and watch and figure out a way to do that. But anyway, that's pretty humbling. You know, when you think that you're the, like I said earlier, you know, if you're on top of the uh, evolutionary chain, you know, when you, when you think about uh, it, it's pretty humbling that uh, there's not all that much that separates us, at least from that genetic uh, piece.
0: I think there's a uh, Planet of the Apes joke in there somewhere, but
1: yeah, there is. There's something there. But so we uh, we went. We had the great pleasure of uh, meeting uh, uh, Rob Shoemaker along the way, and the zoo hired him to sort of direct the project. Uh, and uh, Rob then helped us understand even more about orangutans as it relates to what what makes for a good healthy environment for them and so instead of being a a one singular uh, exhibit or environment what really started to create uh, was uh, was choice and and, uh, uh, multiple places for the orangs to inhabit or to move to and so through the course of those discussions we Glean from the National Zoo in Washington D.C. and other zoos and other animal experts how we might sort of orchestrate that, and, and so pretty soon we were, you know, developing, uh, you know, sort of uh, the uh, roped walk that the uh, 35 feet in the air that the orangs move from point to point, and they choose kind of where they want to be, and it lessens stress, it keeps them active. They are stronger and more physically fit. Their uh, stress hormones are way down. So it's doing all the things that it was, uh, you know, intended to do. And, you know, I think the wonderful thing is that you're never quite sure who's on exhibit. Is it the people or (laughs) is it the the Iraq? And I like that, sort of that inversion, you know, because I think it's part of that, you know, sort of uh, uh, flipping, right? A little bit of the preconceived ideas. so.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. It's just I'm I'm laughing in particular thingy about one of the last times I was there and this orang that was just sort of like leaning on its elbow. Yeah. Kind of like a, a person might at a bar and just yeah. sort of watching through the glass as, yeah. as people stood there to watch them. And it was it was it was a total role reversal.
1: It's very interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it was, uh, I was there last time I was there with some friends. I hadn't seen Rocky who was sort of the animated youngster. I think he's maybe 10, but it was really clear to me that Rocky remembered me, you know, it was just, it was uncanny, you know, and he followed me all the way around inside and outside the exhibit. It was really, it was really pretty interesting from that standpoint. So but yeah, the, the architectural sort of manifestation of all that is really, you know, if you look at some of the Indonesian architecture, um, their, their roof lines, etc. cetera, are sort of captured in, if you squint, in what that uh, physical manifestation of the Orang Center is all about. So it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a blend. It is very much a blend of the practical and the security and the exhibit flow all of that sort of weaves itself together in that facility so it's, it was a wonderful a wonderful project to work on and it's great that they continue to have great success in animal husbandry there as well.
0: I think the for me the most amazing part of it is because there are all of those elements blended in the the health of the animals and security and all that but I think what what visitors walk away with is just an incredible experience. They don't they don't think about the security and they don't you know, because those things don't feel overt to the viewer. I think it's just a, uh, it feels like a, uh, an in-person encounter with some of these animals.
1: Well, good. It, it, it's working then, right? That's you <laughs> want all those other things to just fade away. And you want it to, you know, you want it to be all about you and, uh, your time with a, a great animal species. Right to look i tell you to look in the eyes of any of those orangs you know that they are thinking and they are completely sensate beings you know mm-hmm. and it, and i think it does it it removes even though there is a barrier there i think it it transcends that barrier in a way so
0: well maybe this is a little bit of a segue but i'm curious who your your personal design heroes are if there's anybody that you especially looked up to kind of as you were coming up in the ranks or if there are uh, designers or architects that you're a big fan of yet today?
1: Well, I think probably the, uh, the architect that I'm most fond of was a Finnish architect by the name of Alvar Alto. And I think Alvar, because he, um, his architecture was always unique and specific to place. Um, there's a quality of light and a humanism to it that's always really kind of wonderful. The Saranens, you know, father and son Saarinen, mm-hmm. their, uh, their work is just remarkable. Um, again, if you look at, you know, the Younger's work, um, Heroes, you know, no two are alike. You know, he... he He went and found, you know, some principal magic about the client, right? And then sort of created something unique and special. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: So, and his father, I think, was a, you know, Eliel was an incredible uh, builder, craftsman, artist. You know, his work in the Helsinki train station and other work, Cranbrook, you know, they're just really, really wonderful examples of craft and design rolled into a wonderful experience um you know i I think um, I don't really have many current you know liebermeisters you know I think um, uh, the uh, but but that's not to say that I don't appreciate the work of you know all uh, all the good architecture there's a lots of bad architecture out there but i, <laughs> I you know I think uh I think the good architecture. I think it, you know it's it's getting better all the time. So um, I think the, the the more that places recognize that, it, that being unique in, in a geography and a location and finding architecture that expresses that, I think is is certainly um, to be lauded. Um, the bane of my existence is what I call anywhere USA, mm-hmm. which is the loss of that regionalism or that specific idea of where you are. But yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, 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 look at the magazines but not, I don't study them in great detail, but it's always nice to sort of take a look, see what's going on. I'm, my family accuses me of rubbernecking whenever we're, you know, someplace, you know, because that's <laughs> what I do. My head is like a bobble doll and I'm looking around, you know, sort of soaking it all in and trying to be a good student of that experience we call life. My dad was really good at helping me understand it at an early age. You can't design what you haven't experienced. So uh, that's given me, I think, great uh, permission to go <laughs> and experience as much as I can and, uh, and, and to take you know, dutiful notes and, uh, and to, make, uh, to make things better for your contribution. My, my own Hippocratic oath is make no ugly And hopefully I've succeeded so far in my life not to do that. (laughs) Um, It only takes a moment of inattention in what we do to have a a dilatorious impact for a long, long, long time. (laughs) And so it's important that we, you know, that we understand our social responsibility. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times now, you know, I, I think that we're we are not preparing our next generation in a way that is about, you know, appreciation of the arts and appreciation of, you know, basic proportion and rhythm and beauty. And so I wonder about what, who, who the next set of clients are and what their value set is with respect to what they want to accomplish in the built environment. So,
0: so what would your advice be to a young growing architect who you know, aims to avoid the anywhere USA or the McMansion design or like, how do you, you know, how would you guide them to, to, I guess, not do ugly?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Do no ugly. Um, Well, I, there, there's, you know, I think, in, I think one thing would be to bring your best to everything uh, that you do as a young architect. You know, a lot of times you are saddled with the most mundane of tasks and to not lose spirit because you know in in doing those mundane tasks well you learn the tools of your trade that you can deploy with confidence and skill later in your you know professional life. Um, so I think you have to you have to understand how to be persuasive and how to communicate because those are at the root of being able to sell. An idea that only exists in your head, um, and so to be able to help someone see the unseen, and help them then take a huge risk with you to create the unseen, uh, takes takes uh, uh, purpose and confidence. So those are skills that you that you acquire over time. I think. Um, the ability, although we probably all know people that, you know, could sell you almost anything. I think uh, when you're talking about millions of dollars of investment in something, I think it becomes a little bit more poignant to the, to the owner and the user. Um, But back to, to, to young creative beings, I would say, you know, to find a, find a way to replenish your uh, well, like I was talking about earlier, you know, find some of that, that even when you're doing the mundane things, find the time to be good to yourself, give yourself permission to do something only for yourself, because that will uh, invariably uh, it's infectious. It'll creep into your everyday mundane work and it'll it'll be it'll impact people around you. They'll understand that you have aspirations beyond the mundane and uh, then then you get an audience. right? Um, and so those things. Those things build and add in a pleasant way to the rucksack of your experiences and allow you or the other way to say it is, you know, as a young architect, really what you want to do is you want to get really good at building a lot of arrows to put in your quiver. Right. You you, you want to you want to be able to go. Yes, I understand that particular task. Yes, I understand structural engineering enough to know I can do this. The mechanical integration of systems is important in buildings. The balancing of budget is important. So all of those sort of tools that you, you have to have at your disposal are, are things that um, are, I think, essential in in building confidence and building your your. Uh, CV, as it were, with respect to the ability to do what you've been tasked. And and as a, the people around you certainly will see that you're uh, passionate and that you're competent and that you're persuasive and that uh, all those things, you know, add to the soup. And pretty soon, you know, you, you've, you've uh, been given an opportunity or two or three, and those uh, continue to provide who you work with uh, additional opportunities Uh, i don't think there's any one recipe josh i think mine as i said earlier there was there was no way that i could have planned uh methodically to arrive at this point in my life as a partner and a principal in a firm to have had the opportunities that i've had i think it it has been though about um taking those opportunities and being real and present with everyone with around you to, to, um, to lead that sort of that good cause, right. That to, to, to make it better for your, for your contribution to it. So,
0: well, maybe I love the illustration of, um, of all the arrows that you're collecting. So maybe, maybe it was an opportunity to use one of those arrows in particular, maybe lots of them at the same time, but I'm curious what your or maybe tell us about one of your proudest professional moments.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, proudest moments? Mm, the proudest moment. Well, I think hey, this is going to... Well, okay. By way of story, when I was uh, lucky enough to work with Peter Sterling at the Children's Museum a long, long time ago, he asked me uh, something, uh, and I can't really quite remember exactly what it was, a similar sort of intent to what you're asking, what's the proudest moment. And, and I, I think I thought for a great while and I didn't really answer, uh, but uh, a few days later, I got a letter from Peter in the mail and it was basically, uh, I think it was Lao Tzu, uh, a quote from a Chinese philosopher. He talked about, you know, how as you age, you know, be, you know, you, you accumulate all of these experiences So when I was 26, I wrote down all the things that I thought were going to be important and groundbreaking in my life. And at 26, I wrote down I wanted to be a successful architect. I wanted to be published in an architectural magazine. I wanted to be a principal in a firm. And and I think maybe in there, parenthetically, was I wanted to have paid off my student loans or something like (laughs) that, something a real tangible. Thing. And uh, I gave myself uh, 20 years to get that all accomplished because I'd been educating myself for 20 years. I was 26 at the time. I thought I should know my craft by the time I was 46. It was a long-winded response to your question. But when I got to 46, what I realized was that everything that I had written down on that list, while important, were not the things that gave me great satisfaction in my life. Everything that was really high- uh, uh, in my present-day life didn't exist back then. I had no way of understanding that. Mm-hmm. Um, a connection to um, another person uh, and a family and children would be the things that gave me uh, some of the greatest pride in, in my existence as you know a human. And Maybe that's not the answer that you wanted, but I think what it told me was that I... I am uh, incredibly grateful for what architecture has provided me with, and that's the opportunity to—that's the opportunity to work in a fundamentally close fashion with clients, with people, and the byproduct of a relationship is a building, and so the most important part of the architectural process to me is really that relationship with people and I suppose that's why the uh, proudest moments really for me are with my family and friends now that's professionally (laughs) you know professionally probably one of the, the the most enjoyable and Most proud moments was when uh, in uh, 2000 the United States Grand Prix ran at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and uh, I happened to find myself in the Ferrari pits at the end of the race and I ran down the pits and uh, was there at the uh, celebration uh, with Michael Schumacher on the podium standing next to Tony George sort of looking at this crowd going how in the world did I get here so that was probably you know professionally one of the most amazing moments of my career. But I still would have to err on the side that it's the stuff that I didn't realize at twenty six that I now prize most of of my life
0: well, maybe um based on some of your answers so far, I'll edit this question a little bit, but you know you talked about you're always most excited about what your your next project is, or you're always excited to do a first or you're you're most interested in the people that you can connect with so. Um, is there, is there a dream project for you in your mind that you've yet to accomplish or dream person or dream role? That's
1: a good one. Uh, you know, I, I don't really think so. I don't think there's, I think each one is, you know, I, like I said earlier, I think I just, I just feel so fortunate to be able to just, you know, sort of craft and, uh, and draw, um with with folks that each each one's kind of a, a dream come true. I think I I'm living my dream. Maybe that's it. You know? Maybe it's not so vested in a project. Maybe it's more about process. So you know, uh so maybe I'm just living the dream and that the the projects are are wonderful byproducts of being able to live that dream.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. You know, the title of our show is Obsessed with Design. So Obviously, my uh, hypothesis is that most folks in the design profession are obsessed with something or maybe many things. So I'm curious what you would, um, how you would answer that or what what you feel like you're most obsessed with right now.
1: Mm. Obsessed with design. Well, I think The, the only way I really know how to answer that is, you know, there are times when I get to draw, maybe it's like this for you, where where you actually just lose yourself in the moment of what you're drawing, and that you become this, you know, almost a, a disembodied, you know, sort of hand that's watching, you know, lines come into being and a shape and uh, uh, a plan emerges or a diagram or something. And so, you know, if, if there was something that I, I, I like those moments where you know you sort of are in the in the shadows of thought right where it's not it's certainly not linear <laughs> uh, and it's more about uh, searching right than it is about being definitive and so maybe what that is alluding to is that you know i'm obsessed with that sort of um that quest the japanese have a great i think it's a, i think it's Oku that uh, the where the highest valued place is where the light diminishes just enough, and that your mind has to fill in what that shape is, or that room is, or that object mm. is. And so, I find that a really interesting premise. In that you know, there's a point at which you have to get mentally. In, in, involved. And so maybe that's, maybe that's where my obsession lies is, you know, at that edge where perception falls off and you mentally have to complete the picture.
0: Yeah. That's a really, really cool concept. We'll have to, um, look that up on, on Wikipedia or a link to, to that in the show notes so people can dig into that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. See if I got the name right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, cool. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate you spending some time and telling us more about yourself and your your practice. But maybe before we let you go, um, let our listeners know where they could track you down online or learn more about Browning Day.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Be glad to. Uh, a little propaganda. You can find us at uh, Browning Day Mullins Deerdorf Architects. We also do landscape architecture. We're at BDMD.com. That's bravo David, Mary David.com. Uh, and, uh, you can also just pick up the phone and call us the old fashioned way. <laughs> 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 uh, we're at 317-635-5030. I'm sure we, you know, we have all the other, you know, sort of LinkedIn and all the other sites that I'm not completely up to date with, but, uh, you can Google us certainly at Browning Day Mullen Steerdorf, and you'll find us there too.
0: Excellent. Well, Jonathan, It's been a pleasure catching up with you and thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, guys, that's episode number 54 in the books. Do me a favor this week, head over to iTunes to give us a rating and review to help other people find the show. Also, be sure to check out obsessedshow.com for all of today's show notes. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon. A branding agency located on the 13th floor of Beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. Check us out online this week. We are milesherndon.com. Our show intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit Brassybroad.com for more information. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.